Welcome to Buddha the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Unmani. And uh, Unmani is from the UK, but uh, appears to have a home in Byron Bay, Australia, and yet on her website says she lives out of a suitcase. Right? You live out of a suitcase. I don't live in Byron Bay either. I haven't oh, okay. been there for two years. Oh, I was listening to old recordings, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right, I spent a lot, of, a lot of time in Australia. Mm. Byron Bay sounds like a nice place just from the name of it. It sounds beautiful. How did you come to have the name Unmani? Well, I spent some time at the, um, the Osho commune in Pune in uh-huh. India uh-huh. Uh, after Osho was already dead. And... Uh, I took sannyas, which um, some people may know about, but uh, it's basically um, a kind of a ceremony where you receive a new name and the idea is that uh, you kind of uh, start a life of meditation, something like that. Spiritual um, life, yeah. Yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. Uh-huh. And at the time, it was quite, a, uh, let's say, a significant time for me at that time because I'd never come across anything spiritual or I hadn't meditated before so it really opened my eyes to that so that's Mm. why I took the name and I've kept the name because I like the name not because I have any affiliation to Osho or anything else right so I think we're going to be talking about both of those themes and what you mean by not knowing and why that was so important to you that you named your website after it and uh, why you changed the name to die to love there must have been a good reason for that so we could start with that, but I'm thinking let's just backtrack just a little bit more so people get a feeling for your your background. How did you end up in Osho's ashram, and was that the first sort of taste of the spiritual scene, or had you already been a seeker for a long time? Uh, no, I wasn't really much of a seeker, really. I didn't do very much before I was at the Osho commune. I was traveling I was, I guess, searching for myself, but not in a spiritual way. I was searching for an identity because as a child, I always felt that I, I didn't know who I was and everyone else seemed to know. Mm-hmm. Um, who they were. Who they were, yeah. yeah. Not who and, you were. But... And, and, well, and who they thought I was as oh, okay, well. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and you figured somebody must know. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least I they seem to know. I thought that there, there's, there must be something wrong with me because huh. ev- everyone else knows and I don't. Uh, interesting. I kept on, I kept on looking. Where am I? Where do I find myself? In what? I kept on trying to find where, like, who has preferences, who has opinions, because I didn't have any of those. I mean, so in other so, words, you, you had preferences and opinions, but there didn't seem to be a person who had them. Or you couldn't find the one who had them. Is that what you're saying? Well, there were like spontaneous preferences for yeah. whatever was going on, but mm-hmm. not really opinions about anything. So like, you never got remember- involved in politics or anything like that? You could, could give a hoot about, you know, that sort no, of n- never. It's never <laughs> been of any interest. I, I just remember at primary school uh, when I was like little, when people used to ask me like, what do you want to be when you grow up or what's your favorite color or your favorite football team or in anything like that uh-huh. and i had no idea where to find that information yeah yeah who has that now you, you must know? have had some you know, your mother serves you carrots and you would rather have peas or that kind of thing but sure yeah sure yeah yeah <laughs> that's what i say like that 
spontaneous preferences or like yeah i mean certain people you like to hang around with and other people you didn't like to hang around with and that kind of thing but much more kind of not so much a mental preference as in like a feeling of like oh yeah i like this or i don't like that just kind of more more of a physical yeah like a gut feeling Yeah, yeah 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 but at the same time you you were troubled by the sense that there was no, you didn't know who it was who had these preferences or whatever. There was like, who the heck yeah. am I? Yeah, uh. and uh, and the extra preferences that other people seem to think, or you know, the the strong opinions that people had. Um, I just, I thought there must be something wrong with me because I just don't see any relevance, any importance about any of those things. I I didn't know how to play the game, and so I went searching. For someone, for the for an identity that I could take on, so that I could play the game. Now, when you got into your teenage years, a lot of times people start out with this sort of pure, pristine, you know, tabla rasa kind of state. But then they get in their teenage years and they kind of get more engrossed in in relative concerns. Did that happen to you, or did you slide through your teenage years unscathed? It was a tough time. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really tough time. Yeah. I became very suicidal, and yeah. um, I was yeah just very depressed. I w- I went through like a gothic stage. I don't know if you have that in the states. I, I know what you mean. Yeah, black clothing and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah like really depressed and mm. black makeup, and yeah. I dyed my hair like all these different punk colors. Amy and... Winehouse kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you go through a drug phase? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. an experimental sure. Yeah, phase, sure. Yeah, a lot yeah. of us did. Um, Absolutely. But there was still this, was there still this sort of conscious kind of seeking or inquisitiveness, like, who the heck am I? What's this all about? I mean, did that, that never yeah. uh, really went away, huh? No, I mean, uh, that was con- consistent. And I, I guess I was searching in different ways. I hadn't discovered spirituality, but I uh, did see a therapist for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, it was it was quite helpful to talk to somebody at least. Sure. Um, but I I didn't feel that they understood me really. You know, they didn't understand my, what I was really you know the real problem that I couldn't find myself. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so then you somehow got to the age where you're able to cut loose and uh, you headed out and started doing some traveling, and you somehow ended up in Pune. Or am I skipping some important steps? Well, you know, not necessarily important, but I, I did. I lived in Israel for eight years, actually. Oh. Um, Are you I went, Jewish? I went, Are, yeah, my, my, my family is, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did, my, so, were you trying to sort of find some identity in Judaism? or Not so much Judaism as a religion, because my family's never been religious, but more kind of the traditional. Culture, yeah. Cult, yeah, as a culture, exactly. Right. My family, or my mother in particular, has been always very supportive of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so... I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll check out Israel. And I was part of like a Jewish youth movement, which Mm. was not religious, but more like a a Zionist, um, kind of based in very old Zionist ideas that actually when I got to Israel, I realized they weren't really relevant. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but I I had a nice time in Israel and kind of grew in confidence, I guess. Mm. But it sounds like you were hanging with a bunch of people who were rather certain of their convictions, and you again were like, "How do they get so hot and bothered about this stuff?" You know. <laughs> yeah, I I went with it like it's part of this group, this uh, youth movement, like twenty young people. Um, I think we we're all like seventeen, eighteen, and uh, they all uh, 
had seemed to have strong opinions in different ways and I've just felt a complete outsider for that year I was in Israel for the first year with that group mm. and yeah just it was quite depressing again I was still kind of depressed you know from my teenage yeah. I, um, I I mean I'm I'm going along with this and as it's unfolding and I, I but I I sense the implication and I and I concur with it that there's something very significant about this lack of strong opinions uh there, i think there's a real sp spiritual significance to that which we can get onto. okay so you ended up eight or so years in israel and then headed further east yeah like a lot of israelis do actually oh, do i they? went uh, yeah a lot of israelis travel in the far east mm -hmm. um and i I'd, I'd been in a, uh, a relationship um, for about seven years and it was quite traumatic and I just wanted to get away from him actually. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a good reason to go off. And um, yeah, I worked in Japan for a while and made a bit of money and then I, I went to Thailand and then India. And I was just, it was all kind of traveling. Not really, I wasn't interested in spirituality yet at all. Huh. Um, I was partying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did a fair amount of that when I was a teenager, too. I mean, I'd just get yeah. out there, stick up my thumb, and go to California or, you know, yeah. up, to, up to Boston or whatever. And yeah, it, yeah. it was a sort of a boundary-breaking thing. You know, you keep, yeah. you keep moving and you're not so attached in a way. Exactly. That's what I love about traveling, actually. Yeah. And every place you go, you lose the, the, any kind of identity that you may have had in the last place. Yeah. You start and, fresh. And you mentioned sannyas. I mean, there are certain orders of, of uh, sannyasis who, by their very vows, are not supposed to stay in a place more than three days. You know, they're supposed to keep moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's right up your alley. But somehow or other, you ended up stumbling into Osho's ashram at some point. Was that coincidental, or were you, did you finally begin to get a spiritual sort of orientation to the whole thing, and that drew you there? Well, in India, you can't really avoid spirituality. True, yeah. So just being there already, I'd, I'd heard of things like Reiki, um, and I, I think I'd, I'd uh, learned a little bit of Reiki, and that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to, to energy, you know, that whole kind of Subtler new age levels, yeah. energy, yeah, that sort of thing. And, um, and it, yeah, it was a whole new world. Mm -hmm. um, but um, at the same time, I kind of knew that, some of the more new age kind of practices that were going on were not really what I was looking for. Right. You know? um, and I, I tried a few things also in, in Osho's uh, commune because you can do any kind of healing or therapy or anything there. Mm -hmm. I did like color therapy and uh, I don't know what else I did, various things like that. And um, I mean, they were fun, but... Uh, at the time, I was so intent on finding myself, and it was, that that intention was just getting stronger and stronger. Yeah. That I wasn't I wasn't interested in the subtleties. You know, that was not where I was at yet. Well, you wanted to perhaps even go beyond those to something more fundamental. Right? Yeah. 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 I wanted to get the, to the root of it, and yeah. I didn't know how, I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. You know, so I just kept on sort of feeling like, okay, no, not this, not this, not this, not uh -huh. this, not this. Neti neti. Exactly. <laughs> and and it was really strong. I, and I was always you know, very, very clear about that, you know. Yeah. Um, I didn't understand it. But in my body, I just knew that it's not this. And it didn't feel 100% complete, you know. That's great. No, that's, yeah. that's nice that you had that sort of guiding oh, yeah. impulse or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. So... 
Okay, so how did you proceed then? You know, you kept realizing that this, that, or the other thing were not fundamental enough, and you moved on to... Yeah, so I was in India for about three years, mm -hmm. and a lot of that time, I was, well, I was traveling around and partying, but I, I was also spending quite a bit of time in the Osho commune. Um, I did uh, like a primal therapy uh, workshop where I regressed my childhood, mm. and... Uh, because uh, I thought, you know, maybe the answers are in my childhood. <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah, so I spent a week of crying and screaming <laughs> and trying trying to kill my mother mainly. Mm. Um, and in that process, I broke my foot. Um, <laughs> uh, I broke it and then I continued jumping and screaming on it after oh. I'd broken it. Ah. <laughs> the frustration and the emotion of this whole search was so strong hmm. that it was driving me mad you wow. know i didn't care anymore i didn't care about anything did you have it uh, set in a cast or something or were you still jumping on a unset bro no, broken I foot broke broke it and then it continued immediately like i felt it break and then continued jumping wow that'll give you something to scream about <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then i had it set okay cast. good but uh, uh after that i was lying in bed for weeks and just feeling totally awful and really again even more suicidal because of the broken foot i mean you had to stay in bed well i was forced to stay in bed because of the broken foot right. um, and uh so it just meant that i had no escape from what i was feeling yeah yeah you know, i couldn't go and distract myself by any with anything ah. you know? so you um, broke the foot for a reason <laughs> okay so there you were yeah. lying in bed so i was faced with with this real like wanting to die hmm. really like so had enough i mean i hadn't even done that much searching i mean spiritually but uh, i had had enough already you kind of had i mean you, i mean by comparison with the average person i mean sir you were partying and you're goofing around but it seems to me you there was an there was a determination there that had been driving you for some time well, that determination actually had been driving me since I was a child. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just hadn't just, always aimed it in the right direction. Yes. Yeah, and actually, uh, even spirituality wasn't the right direction. Huh. You know, you could, that, that's also what I discovered. Huh. I tried to find it in spirituality, and that's not it either. Because, you know, people, we, you can see spirituality as just another thing to do. Yeah. Um, and the way I was seeing spirituality then... That's the way it was. Yeah, it kind of depend, depends on how you define spirituality, yeah. perhaps. Sure. Yeah. In a way, I guess I mean like spirituality as opposed to reality. Mm. You know, as if it's something separate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and, I was. And ultimately, it's not supposed to be, but there can be no. some, all kinds of trippy spirituality that can keep exactly. you entertained for years, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't interested in that. I, I was so wanting reality. Right. I remember actually lying in bed making a pact with, I don't know who, but with life or something, that uh, I, I remember saying, um, I am willing to lose everything and, like, never have any of my dreams fulfilled, like, as in, I don't know, you know, I had this dream that I'd meet the perfect man or, you know, whatever, things like that. I never have my dreams fulfilled and never, you know, have anything else um, as long as I can find the truth. Mm. I remember sort of making that pact with life. Yeah. You know? yeah. I've spoken to a number of people who have done something like that, just quite spontaneously. They've sort of yeah. made this sort of 
a pact, I guess is a good enough word, or you know, almost a statement or a prayer almost, you could say, and, yeah. and, and put it out there. Okay, universe, give it to me. You know, I don't want anything yeah. less. And, and it's really turned up the heat uh, um, mm. when they've done that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, somehow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, somebody <laughs> listens, or as Jesus said, yeah. you know, seek it, seek, and you shall find. I remember yeah. hearing a story about a, some monk who lit a stick of incense and said, "If I'm not enlightened by the time this burns my fingers, I'm going to kill myself." <laughs> and apparently, he 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 was okay. He didn't have to kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how life works. Yeah, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So. I had heard about a year before. I'd heard of a woman called Dolano. Oh um, yeah, I've heard of her. A, right, she's a, a German uh, teacher mm-hmm. um, who lives in Pune, but not as part of the Osho ashram. Mm-hmm. She lives outside. Um, she had been an Osho sannyasin for many years, and then she went to Papaji mm-hmm. um, and woke up or whatever you yeah. call it. Um, and she started teaching after that, like some years after that. And um, I had heard of her about a year before, as a friend of mine had been to see her, and I'd heard that she was only accepting people who were ready to die. Hmm. So uh, about a year before all of this drama for me, um, I wasn't really ready. I was I was doing a lot of vipassana meditation. I was like still into like trying therapy and trying other things. So it just seemed too scary then. But when I was lying in bed with my broken leg. And really making that pact and and being so ready to die, I remembered her, and I wrote to her and I said, "I think I'm ready to die. Can I come and join your group?" Mm. And um, she wrote back to me saying, uh, "Write to me when you're sure you're ready to die." Oh yeah, because you said I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so grateful to her for that, really, because um, she wasn't prepared to take me. With, you know, with any less than 100%. Mm. Um, and so it threw me into even more turmoil. And, I, yeah, I just was even more depressed and suicidal. <laughs> and it took a few more days. Did you have a clear uh, understanding at that point of what she meant by ready to uh, die? Or you just had your I, own notion of it somehow? I knew in my body, yeah. again. Like that feeling of, I, I can't even describe it, like... It's fear, a terror, mm-hmm. but but a knowing that that's absolutely it. But uh, obviously, you didn't interpret that as meaning literally, physically dying. It was more like no. a death of everything you're attached to, or some such thing. I didn't understand it mentally, no. really. I didn't have any spiritual concepts about, you know, how you should die before you wake up, or I didn't even care about awakening or enlightenment. I hadn't even, I wasn't interested in enlightenment or liberation or whatever we call it didn't care i was only wanting the truth um and even the the concept of truth i didn't even understand it as a concept i just had this sort of drive in me so in other words you had this drive you wanted the truth but the words enlightenment and liberation and all that you didn't associate them with yeah with that drive um yeah and and you know if properly defined they could be associated with that but that wasn't your understanding of them and you you just know whatever it is i want it yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. So then I wrote back to her and I said, "Okay, <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready to die. I'm really now." Mm-hmm. So she invited me to come, and I spent a month with her in a, in a, a small group. Um, and uh, during that month, um, it was a pretty full-on month. Um, but 
I can't even say that something in particular happened. Um, just, I mean, she, her expression is very clear. Um, and for me at the time, um, it was very good because she was using a lot of language that I'd heard in the Osho commune. Mm-hmm. And so she was kind of using that language and then unpicking that language and, and um, questioning it. You know, what does it really mean huh. in, in reality? Like, what do these spiritual concepts really mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and also questioning, well, who are you, really? Yeah. You know? And I had never heard that question really before, you know, in the way that she was saying. Um, I'd never been to satsang before. You had sort of asked it to yourself all your life. I mean, who am I? But uh, somehow I guess it took on new meaning when the way yeah. she asked it. Yeah, yeah. it did. It did. Huh. And at some point, um, I didn't have like a big spiritual experience or anything like that, but something definitely died you know i i can't say what it is really what it was but uh there was definitely an end of something that happened during that time um and uh, i yeah i mean i guess in a way you could say that somehow time stopped hmm. um so after a month you were done with that with that yeah and i then continued traveling around india and and then I went to Australia, and uh, my motivation for traveling was I, I kind of didn't have any motivation for anything anymore because all my motivation before that had been to find myself, mm-hmm. and so I was kind of just having fun again, you know. But did you? Uh, was it from a whole different orientation? You say time stopped. I mean, yeah, something yeah. shift. Something had shifted somehow. Something had shifted. Yeah, but. Still, what was happening after that was the questions were coming up in thought of like, how do I live this? You know, what do I, what do I have to do to, to really bring this into my life mm-hmm. on a daily basis? Yeah. And, of, and of course, I didn't have answers for that. And those thoughts were just swimming around. But the this that you were referring to was clear to you at that point. The, it had somehow dawned in your awareness, or however you want to phrase it. And yeah. but it hadn't integrated. You weren't able to sort of like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah, because it wasn't. You see, what I'd recognized wasn't some kind of experience. Right. You know, I wasn't like in a state of bliss or something like that. You know, that was kind of. I wasn't floating on a cloud somehow. Right. It was reality. I had my feet on the ground, which is exactly what I was always searching for. Yeah. Um, I didn't want an experience of bliss, and so I didn't have one. You know, obviously there were times of good times and bad times, but it was reality. And I didn't think that it should be blissful, because I hadn't really heard about uh, other teachers' experiences or anything like that. So I had no kind of preconceptions. Yeah. Yeah, preconceptions about how it should be. Yeah. But um, I did sort of feel like something still wasn't kind of integrated in some way. I didn't really understand it. Yeah. But nonetheless, there was some stable, abiding realization of some sort. I, I hate to put words yeah, in your mouth. But there was it's, it's t- difficult to even put your finger on it because it's not yeah. an exper- experience. Right. It's um, just a kind of knowing, not in thinking, right. but just a knowing. Yes. Um, and, and and it's a kind of expansive knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, every word is wrong, but yeah, yeah something. But like we hint at it, you know. <laughs> yeah, Finger, yeah, yeah. Fingers pointing at the moon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not not the actual moon. It's just a finger, but it gives us an indication. Yeah, um, 
Okay, so then how did you resolve that quandary? You were, you know, well, traveling uh, around. What am I gonna? How am I gonna live this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I don't mean to pick on your words, but it's it, okay. that, that, but no, no, but that question. How did I resolve it? It, it was really resolved by the fact that I recognized that I don't need, I, I don't need to resolve it. Yeah. You know? So you just, that you kind of came to comfortable with that, that, it, that there was nothing you needed to do to resolve anything. Well, it, it took a while. I was traveling in Australia and I came across some other teachers that I kind of dipped into here and there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean... Spiritual teachers. You mean like sa yeah, Sailor Bob, those kinds of people? No, no. I, ne I, I never went to Sailor Bob then. Mm. Um, no, it was more about relationship stuff, actually. Okay. The sort of male-female male dance. Uh -huh. I don't know if you've heard of Bernie Pryor oh, or yeah. Barry, Barry Long. Yeah, uh, well, Bernie, uh, Bernie Pryor is on my list of people to eventually interview. I don't know about Barry, okay. but... <laughs> Uh, Barry's, Barry Long's dead, so okay. you have to find it difficult to use some him. psychic to interview him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never met him, but I read a lot of his books and listened yeah. to his tapes and that sort of thing. And I kind of got into that trip of, mm -hmm. of uh, the male-female thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and it, it was a, a really interesting exploration for me, especially in terms of relationships with men and yeah, but I still, it was still a case of like, not this, not that, not this, not that, you know, it was mm. just, um, still wasn't it, you know, still wasn't, uh, uh, that wasn't going to help, help me to integrate anything. Huh. So, so you were exploring yeah. the relationship thing, but you felt like, eh, why am I doing this? Was there sort of a sense of, it, yeah, this is nice, but it's not really the nitty gritty that I'm... Well, it was a case of... Um, it was really interesting mm -hmm. to explore that kind of almost psychological stuff that was still playing out in my relationships and to kind of get into that trip of like, oh, poor me, I've been treated so badly as a woman, <laughs> you know, the men are so horrible and, you know, and it was an interesting thing to play that game for a while mm -hmm. and then to see, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's just another trip. Yeah. <laughs> and then that fell away too. Okay. Having gone so, through it, did you feel somehow more integrated? Yeah, yeah. But then I guess what really changed things is I went back to England and um, I came across some of the English spiritual teachers there, like Tony Parsons. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've heard of Nathan Gill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he uh, is not teaching anymore, but he, he was fantastic for me, really, really clear um, and... Uh, just cleared up a lot of confusion that I had still left over. And also hearing both of their their expressions, which were very different to Dolano, right. kind of in a way more down to earth, kind of opened something else for me. Mm -hmm. But I guess, yeah, one night I was, I was lying in bed and I'd had an argument with, <laughs> or not an argument, like a discussion with uh, some friends and they accused me of being arrogant. Hmm. because I was talking about awakening or something. So I was lying in bed thinking, oh, my God, I'm so, um, maybe I am so arrogant. Oh, it's terrible, you know. How arrogant am I? And uh, I just felt awful. And I was spinning with this all night. And at one point, suddenly it all fell away. And I recognized that um, actually recognizing who I am is absolute arrogance. 
as in it's you know it's the only arrogance you can call it arrogance it's not arrogance because it's all who i am in what um, sense would you call it arrogance well, i mean well it's it's not really arrogance it's like you see um for someone like i mean the the position that i had when i was growing up was that i was i, I was very insecure mm-hmm. i always thought that there was something wrong with me you know i wasn't good enough and so to think that i'm okay uh, to my thinking sounds arrogant oh i see you know what i mean yeah sort of like who are you to think you're not yeah. You're okay <laughs> yeah exactly like how dare you like you must be arrogant uh-huh you know but actually, I am okay. You know, I'm 100% okay because yeah. I'm the whole of life. I think that um, humility and confidence are not uh, counter-opposed. You know, I mean, they can both be lived simultaneously. Yeah, when, and humility is, is not in an attitude of humility. No, it's just, uh, well, what would you say it is? Humility is, is just a natural recognition of 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 life itself the fact that you know you're not separate from anyone else mm-hmm. that is a natural humility you know that no separation no boundaries how could you take any position higher than anybody else it's just ridiculous yeah no that's a nice definition of it and perhaps also not being not separate from life itself you don't um oppose the natural current of life the flow of life you know you're, you're sort of in tune with that not sort of pushing against it you know in a, yeah. which which to me seems arrogant yeah yeah exactly <laughs> forcing things because you think that you know better yeah and, insisting that yeah. things should be a particular way and so on yeah 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 that's good exactly. it's interesting you know and now we're getting into something that i think we're, we're going to talk about a lot tonight um which is paradox uh which i've heard you mention a number of times mm-hmm. that word and uh the whole not knowing theme is paradoxical so well, let's dwell on that as we go along. But since we're going through a nice chronology here, and I think we're getting a lot out of it, let's continue with that for a little bit longer. You, uh, so there you were lying in bed. Your friends had accused you of arrogance. You were, you know, you were kind of coming to terms with that accusation. And, uh, and so take us from there. Yeah, I guess I, I just had a, an insight or a realization or something like that that's, that actually... Um, that there's no separation, hmm. um, and and in that realization, everything was over. As in, I don't mean that suddenly I'm fully, uh, fully done in some way, mm-hmm. but the searching, the the thinking that there was something wrong with me, mm. or something missing, that was over. You just dropped it. Yeah. Yeah. It just. Yeah. Just it was no longer. Yeah. Dissipated. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a common misconception with that. When people hear that, they think that oh, that's it. She's fully enlightened. Uh, it's done. She's a perfect person as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's in this. She's floating around this state of bliss all the time, and uh, yeah, nothing. She never feels pain or fear or worry or anything. You know, um, and it's not like that. No. You know, it's still reality. And what I've noticed since then is a never-ending losing, mm-hmm. a seeing thought for what it is, seeing emotion for what it is, seeing physical sensation for what it is in, in the reality of what it is, you know, rather than 
old beliefs, old dreams, hopes, fears, you know, and and that stuff comes up to be seen and and uh, kind of melts in the light of of who I am. That's beautiful, and it does that uh, just quite spontaneously. You're not doing anything yeah, to facilitate doing, that, right? Not at all. It I mean, how, how could I? Bubbling up I and melting. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's neat. Uh, and you're not the first person I've heard describe that sort of thing. At, at a certain stage, that seems to be an automatic process takes over. Yeah. Where things just keep presenting themselves in order to dissipate. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So there's no way I could say that, you know, I've arrived anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know. That would be I arrogant. Mean, well, yeah, that would, that would be thought. Also claiming some position right. and, and making myself separate from the whole of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would just be yeah. a joke. And, you know, on this theme of dropping the seeking and people thinking, oh, that means she's, she's enlightened or some such thing. Uh, another misunderstanding that I think comes up is that people hear someone say this dropping the seeking business and they say, okay, good, I'll drop the seeking. And then it becomes this sort of apathy where they've kind of unnaturally begun to ignore the natural motivation that you've been describing in your own life that had been driving you all along and and you know just sort of kind of giving up in in a way which is perhaps premature you know absolutely yeah i mean normally i would uh, advise people to search as hard as they can <laughs> um as long as they're you know, naturally inclined as, to as do long- so Absolutely, you know, to really go for it, to try everything that they feel they need to try, every practice as as much as they feel they need to, um, until they get so exhausted by it, you know. But it's got to, you know, it's got to feel natural, you know. Yeah. You've got to come to that yourself. You can't rely on what someone else says. When someone, if someone else says drop seeking, that's just another attitude. This really is about waking up to yourself, for yourself. So you can't. Kind of relying on what someone else has told you, um, even if it's right, um, it's not uh, taking the authority yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like sort of reading a cookbook and not do, actually getting down and trying, trying the recipes and actually cooking the yeah. things. <laughs> and in yeah. a way, it's a lot more scary. It's a lot more frightening to actually go there yourself rather than just, you know, yeah, believing what someone else has said. And I would add that what you said about if people are feeling inclined to do practices and all, just go for it, do it. But there was a sort of a tone as you said that, that it's futile to do it, but go ahead and do it anyway. I would say that it's not necessarily futile. Those practices might be very beneficial for the people at the time they're doing them. And then they may reach a point at which they're no longer beneficial and they become superfluous or obsolete for them at that time. And then maybe, maybe they pick up something else. It just depends what we're talking about as being beneficial for, you know, for, for what? You see, if, if we're talking about trying to improve their lives, mm-hmm. and if someone wants to improve their life, they, they feel they're, they're suffering a lot, then, yeah, try a practice. It might actually improve your life in some way, temporarily. But if we're talking about really getting to the root of it, no practice is going to get you there. 
It's about recognizing who you are. It's not about practicing anything. It's not about a timeline of improving and then you finally get so improved that you're enlightened, you know? Right. It's not like that. It's about a hard questioning, like what what is real? But I would posit that a practice, you're welcome to disagree with this, that a practice of some sort could get a person to the point where they were more ripe or... More exhausted. Maybe more exhausted. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. Sure. You know, I've been doing a practice of meditation for 43 years, and I totally love it. I feel like the seeking has dropped off in one sense. There's that continuous abiding presence of awareness, and uh, that's just hunky-dory. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's seeking in the sense that I'm totally enthralled with this whole topic, which is why I do this interview show. I love talking to people like you and, and pondering these sorts of issues and exploring how it has gone for different people. But, you know, even now, I mean, tonight, I had a very busy day, took a long walk with the dogs and came back rather tired and sat down to meditate. And by after 45 minutes of meditation, I felt rejuvenated and, and just full of energy and clarity. Now, that's just my body. You know, it didn't really, I don't think, change my actual awareness. That's kind of beyond the influence of anything. But the um, maybe that's just what you're saying. I mean, there was a certain yeah. certain benefit that I derived from it that I really enjoy. It's, it's like having a, having a good sleep at night or taking a nap or something, but it's of a different sort. You know, it has certain other effects than those things have. Yeah, I mean, I'm, we're agreeing with each other. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, if you want to improve your state, uh -huh. maybe see through your thinking a little bit more. I guess that can also help with that. Um, calm yourself or you know rejuvenate yourself or something like that you know yeah. it's also uh, um, nice for the body as well exactly um, it's, it's relaxing and you know all that yeah it's just that it's got nothing to do with recognizing who you are right yeah I, I, I think I'm with you there um, hmm. it uh, and yet it, it's sort of perhaps more conducive to recognizing who one is than it would be if I had spent that 45 minutes drinking a few beers and watching the football game. You know, it would have had Not a necessarily. Uh, Not necessarily. No, I mean, if you, I don't know if, if you drink sometimes, but, but if you... Hardly do you ever. Have, uh, like about five years ago, I had a beer. <laughs> maybe you should try it because it's an interesting experiment. If you're drunk, uh -huh. then actually it, uh, it's, it actually becomes even more of like a play like the life becomes even more kind of obviously not happening to you mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah you know it, what i find that i i have that experience when i'm in more kind of extreme demanding circumstances like if i'm running through an airport or something and all the hecticness of the airport the contrast is much greater uh, right, uh, then yeah. the the obviousness of that it's not happening to me becomes much yeah, more yeah, yeah. stark. Yeah. Well, it can be in different circumstances. I mean. Yeah, yeah. That's just yeah, a these, case in these, point. These moments of recognition can come when you least expect it. Mm -hmm. You know, these insights, and then they go, of course. But uh, you know, you get the point when they come. Yeah, they do and they don't. In, in a way, it's almost like if you could use a metaphor. You know, let's say that 
self-recognition was like a tone, an audible tone. Of course it's not, but for the sake of illustration. And if that tone is going on continuously, then obviously after a while you're not going to keep like paying attention, oh yeah, there's the tone, there's the tone, there's the tone. You, you know, you're going to be doing whatever you're doing, but you could at any point, if you wished, uh, you know, check in. Oh yeah, sure, the tone's still going on. <clears throat> does that does that metaphor help uh, help at all? Or do you think I'm off the beam on that one? Well, the thing is, is that um, it's not a tone. No, of I know, I know, I know, I know, but yeah. I mean, it's not an experience. Yes, that's no. the thing. So you can never check in. Oh, is it still there? It's you can't because what are you going to find when you check? Well, you find that that same presence, which has no um, contents, well, yeah, it's it's that which can't be encapsulated in words, obviously. But we yeah, we can so only we can al- we can allude to it. Yeah, but when you look for it, how are you going to find it? You don't find it as an object of perception. Um, you know, I mean, you are that, and you, you're not kind exactly. of yeah. You're not so. Oh, here, here it is over in this corner. But exactly. but somehow. It is known in a, in a different way than than ordinarily things are known in which in which there's the object and the subject and the means you know the sen- the sensory apparatus which enables you to you know perceive the object. Actually, what this conversation that we're having actually is a very uh, common misconception that that somehow um, even subtly it is believed to be an experience. Right. Right. And it is subtle, and and thinking can be very sneaky with this. You know, thinking that somehow you can put attention on it, but you can't. And thereby retain it, you mean, in some way, or... or thereby, what? And thereby retain it by virtue of putting attention on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And that when you forget to put your attention on it, oh, it's lost or something. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's, it's, it's not lived by virtue of remembering it, nor is it lost by virtue of forgetting it, um, no. you know. Because yeah. if, it, if it could be, then it's something which is encapsulated within the individuality. Mm. And obviously, it's probably the exact opposite. The individuality yeah. is encapsulated within that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, went, I definitely went through a phase back at a certain point of, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it. You know, this kind of on again, off again sort of thing, which was rather agonizing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people go through that. Yeah. yeah. Where thinking thinks it gets it. Yeah. And of course, it, it never gets it. It's just thinking thinks, oh, I've got it now, and then thinking thinks, I've lost it now. But actually, you've never got it, and you've never lost it. Right. Because it's not an it. Right. There is something which I thought, which came to my mind quite a bit when I was listening to your, your um, satsangs and recordings. I don't know why I kept thinking of it, but maybe we can explore it a bit. And that is that even though this is not an experience in the sense that listening to a concert is an experience or eating dinner is an experience or anything like that, it is lived by virtue of the fact that we, we have a body. If we were died, then who knows what would be happening. Or if we suffered a severe stroke or something, who knows whether we would still be living it, whether it would still be lived, at least in this body. Do you agree with me so far? Well, of course, we, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what happens when this body dies, and actually, who cares? Yeah. Really. I mean, uh, there is a body, mm-hmm. uh, it seems, but even that is too much, you know? Like we, it's a common kind of socially accepted thing to say that there is a body, but actually, the reality 
right now is that I have no body. I don't find a body in any way. I find sensation. I find like a bit of a visual image of a body. Mm-hmm. I'm not in any body. No, but this the fact that we're able to have this conversation and the fact that you spend all of your time running around the world talking about something and however elusive it may be to you know put in words is you know is able to take place by virtue of the fact that you have a brain and a nervous system and you know you've learned how to speak over the course of a lifetime and there's certain parts of your brain that are responsible for that function um and what I'm beginning to get at here is that there may also be certain parts of the brain or perhaps the entire brain or whatever that are responsible for the fact that there was some dawning of self-recognition or, or self-realization or whatever terminology we may want to use. In other words, that it has a physiological co- correlate or counterpart that enables it to be lived. Um, and that if the physiology were sufficiently damaged, we might lose the ability to live it. And conversely, if the physiology is enhanced in some way, on some level, perhaps perhaps all this stuff you were going through with the Osho's community and all the other things and Dolano and, and so on was not only changing something in the way you, you understood things, but there was something in the way your brain was functioning. I mean, people, for instance, go through these huge kundalini things sometimes, for instance. They feel like huge changes are taking place in their physiologies. And at the end of it, you know, they they find themselves to be awake in a way that they never were before. So it's not only that the that somehow consciousness has been realized, but as as if the physiology has been transmuted in some way to support or enable that that realization. I've no idea. Okay. I I, I don't know if it means if I have a brain even. Okay. I, I don't know really. I don't know. I know it's it's you know it sounds stupid to say that and sounds ridiculous, but I, you know. I prefer to stick with what I know. Okay. No, that's good. Rather than just buying into what everybody else believes in. No, as a matter of fact, when I was listening to you, I was thinking, uh, to your satsangs, I was thinking of the example of, I don't know if I have a liver, you know, but you could cut me open and probably it would be there, but I don't really know. Yeah, probably it would be there, but (laughs) who knows? Yeah. And actually, it's irrelevant, really. It is. There's a subtle point I'm trying to get at, which is that, Personally, I, th- I think that the whole world of spirituality and spiritual practices and, and you know, spiritual development or whatever you want to call it, and, and I realize that you know, terminology is inadequate, has a physiological basis. And there has actually been a lot of research on it from various types of practices and techniques and so on. And there are scientists trying to determine, trying to establish that the so-called enlightened state or realized state actually has a, a physiological correlate in terms of the brain functioning in a certain way and the physiology functioning in a certain way, which kind of stands to reason. I mean, because it is something that is lived through this apparatus, if it's lived at all. Okay, on the theme of no idea, let's talk about not knowing a little bit. Why did you name your website Not Knowing? And, and that obviously was a cornerstone of what you considered important to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I guess this also, I can talk about that, and also it ties into why I've changed it now. Okay, to, please, to, yeah. to, die, to die to love. Good. Because, as I said earlier, that um, when I was a child, I kind of never really understood what was going on, really. Mm-hmm. And as I grew up, and, and, and then as I recognized who I really am, I rec- in that recognition, I recognized that I'd always known that. 
yeah, since, yeah. I was, since I was a child, actually. Mm-hmm. That actually, I guess that's kind of why I didn't have some sudden big spiritual experience when, in recognizing that, because it wasn't new. You know, it was just like, oh, okay, we're talking about that. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I've always known that. It's always been here, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but I never heard someone actually talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started calling the meetings, meetings in not knowing, mm-hmm. in gratitude to the child that always knew, huh. you know, that always knew that she didn't know. <laughs> um, and so the meetings, when I first started, they were just a kind of scream, a, a kind of, well, I wasn't screaming literally, but <laughs> not usually. They were kind of a rebellious scream um, against the world that had told me that I should know when actually I didn't know and I didn't need to know. So I was kind of screaming in the meetings, I don't need to know. You know, that's who I am, not knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so the meetings were very good for me. Actually, a kind of they were like a a, a kind of healing in a way for me um, to be able to say it. Yeah, you know, this is this is the way it is. Even if the whole world says the opposite. And, uh, yeah, so that's why I, I called the meetings meeting and not knowing and ingratitude to that. So what were you actually saying to people in a nutshell? Well, I was, I, I, lots of things. I mean, the, the expressions changed a yeah. lot uh, over, over the years. I was pointing to who, who I am, who they are, mm-hmm. in lots of ways. Pointing to, yeah, the fact that actually... When they think they know, that's just thinking, uh-huh. and that actually, in reality, who they are doesn't need to rely on thinking mm. in order to be. Right. So, yeah, I was highlighting that in, in words, in the eyes, in the energy of just sitting there together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now, why it's changed is because I was doing those meetings for about eight years and they the, the expression naturally developed when I first started I was uh, just sitting at the front taking questions from the audience because that was the format that I'd seen other people other teachers do so I kind of just copied that because I didn't really know how else to do it and I guess it was sort of safe to just copy that when I first started and as I grew in courage doing it and I kind of took on more of my own authority in it, I changed the format and I had another chair at the front and I invited people to come up to the front to have uh, kind of intimate dialogues with me. And for me that changed everything because before that I'd started to feel that it was getting quite stagnant. Mm. It was just becoming like an intellectual debate that uh, people were interrupting each other and picking each other up on their words. Someone would sit at, at the very back of the of the room and like shout a question out to me, and I'd shout a, an answer back to them, and it was just all words. Sounds, Somehow, sounds it, chaotic it was, or something. Yeah. It was chaotic. It yeah. wasn't. Uh, it wasn't intense enough. Hmm. <laughs> it wasn't coherent enough. It wasn't coherent enough. It wasn't focused enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I and I wanted to start to really focus um, because somehow I seem to have like a very good bullshit detector <laughs> somehow. 
Um, and that's d developed more and more um, over the last few years. And so in these dialogues now, someone is sitting in front of me and very gently, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not kind of slapping them around too much. Well, occasionally I am, but, um, but very gently just meeting them where they're at um, and taking them slowly from there um, to undermine, you know, undermining their thinking, their beliefs, mm -hmm. and uncovering the reality of what they really know so that they can recognize it for themselves mm -hmm. rather than just agreeing with me conceptually. Right. Um, or learning so how that to changed. talk the talk. Yeah, exactly. A lot oh, of that yeah, that, that, that was just sickening, actually, at the time. <laughs> so the non-duality scene was just, yeah, that broke away from that. A friend of mine that I interviewed a few weeks ago, he said that when, he, when they all came back from, uh, where was it, that uh, Lucknow, where, where Papaji was back in the late 90s, they were all saying, they wouldn't just say, you know, pass the salt, they would say, this body wants the salt. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of nauseating. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, so there was a lot of that in the, the kind of London non-duality scene. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it. I wanted to kind of snap people out of that. Yeah. Um, and so having them come up to the front was quite good with that. Well, this is good. Let's talk a bit more about this. Uh, I feel like I need to compensate for that long diatribe that I just went into <laughs> a few minutes ago. <laughs> Let me pose this as a question. Why do you feel that divesting people or helping to break them of the habit of taking their opinions and thoughts so seriously is very powerful or instrumental tool in enabling them to sh in helping them to shift into a sort of broader perspective or something well you know everyone is searching really to kind of live uh, in a more free way you know also in a daily basis you know mm -hmm. um, people want to live in a way that is beyond belief beyond the, the restrictions of their beliefs mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so, recognizing who they are, you recognize that actually who you are is already beyond all of those beliefs, and yet those beliefs can still kick in. Yes. And and so it can feel like that paradox, you know, of like I recognize who I am, but I'm still living as if I don't recognize that. You know why? And it's very frustrating and upsetting. Um, and so exploring that with people and, and taking them from like recognizing who they are and so they clearly recognize that and then in that pops up these old patterns, old beliefs, old habits, hopes, fears, dreams and in that, in, in that recognition of who they are they can see more clearly how ridiculous those restricting beliefs are so somehow in, those, in the dialogue together uh, we're holding that recognition together just by looking in the eyes, um, by sitting there together. I don't even understand how it works, but but energetically somehow it's held mm -hmm. so that together we can explore um, the reality of their thinking, the conceptual stuff, you know, that's yeah. been weaved in. I think it helps people to attune somehow to that, you know? It's like if you put two tuning forks next to each other and twang one of them, the other one will start to vibrate after a while mm. at the same frequency. 
Of course, you just referred to people who have recognized who they are but are still tripped up by their opinions and beliefs, but don't you get a lot of people who wouldn't feel very confident that they had recognized who they are also? Well, anyone who thinks that they've recognized who, who they are usually hasn't anyway. <laughs> <laughs> then how would someone yeah. legitimately convey to you that they had recognized who they are? Well, they wouldn't have to say anything. It would be obvious. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, what was the question? Well, just that I'm sure that among the people who come to your satsangs, if you call them satsangs, oh, yeah. um, there's a whole mixed bag, you know, a whole, sure. whole, whole spectrum, a whole range of types of people, some of whom may be very confused and not, don't have the slightest shred of confidence that they have any idea who they are, and, yeah, yeah. and others who may be quite grounded and settled in, in that realization, but, sure. but still and, have and some the, cobwebs to clear up, you know. Sure, and what's good about these dialogues is that I'm meeting each person where they're at, by getting if them up on the stage one by one, yeah, one at a time, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So if they're still trying to figure it all out and try, still trying to understand and they're searching, and then uh, we, go, we, we investigate who they are. Yeah. Really, like right now. That's the kind of way um, Gangaji's been doing it for a long time. And so then the rest of the audience just sits and behaves themselves and let, let you can have a more coherent dialogue with one person. Yeah, and actually, a lot of people say that they get a lot of a lot out of watching the dialogues. Sure. Because you know, well, it's much more intense. The kind of intellectual debate. Yeah. Um, a lot happens. Um, people have recognitions, um, energetic uh, shifts, or I don't know. You know, all these words are, are wrong. They don't really say it, but but somehow things things happen for people, and they realise stuff they they realize how they've been taking themselves so seriously we have a laugh maybe they cry um so yeah it can be quite dramatic yeah no definitely there's a saying in india that you can move a table by pulling any of its legs and the and the rest of the legs will come along and my allusion to practices and so on earlier was you know just a, a, a kind of an endorsement of pulling le pulling certain legs but what you're what you're talking about here is pulling a different sort of leg and uh, it's very profound. It really is. I've seen it happen many times. People, their whole orientation kind of shifts or comes, there's sort of an alignment or a tune, an attunement that takes place. And it can have very deep and, and lasting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, I generally tend to relate to everybody as if they already know who they are. Hmm. You know, um, because they do. Right. It's just that they think they don't. Yeah. So, um, so in that, that just that seems to relax something in in people, you know, and because they kind of they recognise something just by by virtue of your recognition. Yeah, and yet they can't put their finger in it. They're still trying to figure it out with their minds, but mm -hmm. um, some recognition there. That's great. And so, how did you shift? Uh, you haven't really talked much about this die to love thing. In the last year or so, or maybe a bit more, I've just felt, well, maybe a couple of years, I've, just, I've felt that the expression has grown and in, in like a, in, in courage, in strength, or, or also in vulnerability in a way, in a kind of strength in vulnerability. Um, and it's evolved again. And so this not knowing thing somehow seems like a kind of an old 
an old phase. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a continual, as I was saying before, there's a continual losing and growing Mm -hmm. um, in this daily life. You know, life, you know, just like a plant or a tree or, you know, it's continually changing and growing. And and the same for this person. No, I love love that you're saying that. In fact, there's in many of my interviews, I have to try to coax that out of people. I said, don't you feel like there's still some kind of growth or unfoldment or, you know, evolution or however you want to phrase it? And a lot of them just say, no, it's like, how could anything possibly change? But, you know, it's it's like the and I can't relate to it. You know, the people that I can relate to more easily are the kind of thing you're saying here, which is that because that's again, I can only relate in terms of my own experience and what I observe in people. But there's there's this sort of continual and deepening or like you say falling away absolutely it's it blows me away again and again and again and again and again you know there's there's no end to it mm-hmm. and actually for for me the meetings do that as well you yeah. know just meet you know I'll bet I you they're act- as beneficial I for actually, you as they are for the participants you know it's like you're the one who gets the most out of it <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah i mean i actually don't care about anybody else <laughs> yeah, i'm i'm not trying to help anybody else uh-huh. Why would I? I don't see anybody else. I don't see that anybody needs any help. They are already absolutely perfect, just mm-hmm. the way they are. And and I relate to them like that. Um, so actually, in fact, it's a surprise when they tell me that, that actually they, they think something's missing or they're searching for something, you know. But um, but all the stuff that seems to be coming from them, actually, it's all coming up in me. Mm-hmm. And it's all who in who I am, I'm, and and uh, somehow there seems to be a sensitivity um, to be able to feel everything that the other person is feeling as we sit there together. So yeah, it's fully, yeah, I don't know, it has a whole life of its own, especially in retreats. When yeah. I run retreats, they're extremely powerful <laughs> uh, for me and for everybody else, you know? Yeah, yeah. people can really settle into it. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just dialogues that we do. We just we do all kinds of things that actually trigger stuff, you know, trigger more old patterns and old beliefs and fears and all of that yeah. so that we c- we can look at it even more. So so you mentioned that the reason this die to love phrase came in um is that the not knowing thing had in a way, run its course. I mean, I'm sure that that's still as relevant as it always was, but somehow a new flavor had begun to dawn. Um, yeah, well, well, actually, you know, what I said before about how the meetings used to be like ingratitude to the child that always knew, mm-hmm. I feel now that the child is not here anymore. You know, she's fully integrated into the woman. Like, I mean, even the woman's not here, but but somehow there's only this expression now and the and 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 doing the meetings out of gratitude to the child just seems like some old story you know it doesn't seem like you know i i don't feel the need to do scream in that rebellious way anymore Uh you know there's there's more kind of arresting in in okayness now you know uh there's no reacting to the world And why the word love? Do you feel like love has blossomed a lot more um, within your experience or something? Is that why you're well, emphasizing that word? Well, actually, Die to Love is the name of my second book. Uh-huh. When I wrote that book, I wrote it a few years ago, but I, when I wrote it, it was an exploration of love. 
for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to explore um, what is the meaning of love about relationships, but also not only the experience of love, but also the word love being used for who I am and how how does the word love actually really have any meaning in who I am, as who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, through writing that book, um, I explored it th- for myself. And since then, there's been much more, I guess, an in-loveness that happens in the meetings and generally in my life. Mm-hmm. But um, much more of an including everything. Um, and it's it's not, you know, the word love can sound very kind of lovey-dovey. Well, it's got a lot of <laughs> very, connotations. Yeah, and I don't mean it like that at all. I'm still very much talking about reality. Right. Like feet, feet on the ground, very much like what is actually going on. And it's not about blissing out. It's not about some dreamy love state. I like the word love because I, I use it in terms of like everything is included. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why... Uh, it's love because we're talking about like unconditional love that everything in life is love even if it doesn't feel like love you know even if it's uncomfortable or painful or frightening it is still who i am which is love Mm -hmm. it's the same thing um and dying to love die to love is well it's the death of who you think you are into everything that is which is love and and life loves itself so much that it dies to itself yeah the word love is is tricky it's like it's like using the word god you know there's there's so many connotations and all but i think i i'm glad you're using it i don't think you should you know avoid it for, 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 I guess for, I'm using it especially because it's got those connotations because a lot of people are afraid to use it because of that yeah uh, and a lot of uh, non-duality teachers and so on seem to delight in um, trashing love well trashing love and and and, portray, and uh, portraying a reality as a very colorless qualityless mm-hmm. flat emptiness empty yeah. nothingness you know? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And it is empty, and yet the paradox is that it's emptiness full. is full. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, for, I guess also for me, in a way, the not knowing was more on the side of emptiness. And now I feel like it's kind of flipped. It hasn't flipped completely to the fullness as, as well, because I, I still talk about death. Sure. <laughs> and that is, you know, the death is, is the nothingness. That's mm. what, you know, we're, we're all afraid of dying because we're afraid of nothing. There's this thing in Vedic, sci- Vedic studies where there's Shunyavada, which is like an emphasis on emptiness, and then there's Purnavada, which is an emphasis on, on fullness. I like both. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a reality. Yeah. yeah, and that brings up another great point, which I kind of thought about a lot as I was listening to your audios, which is that, in fact, a lot of times as I was listening to you, and I listened for quite a few hours because I haven't done an interview for a couple of weeks, so I had plenty of time. Almost everything you would say, I would say, I totally agree with that, and I also agree with the complete opposite of it, you know? <laughs> and both of them are true simultaneously. Yeah. And I, okay, now the next point, you know, you say something else, I say, yep, right on, also the complete opposite is right on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why no word is good enough. You know, as soon as you say it, you're limiting. 
You're limiting life. So, I mean, you could say it's better just to shut up and not say anything. But then there's a natural, like, uh, just overflow of expression, an outpouring of expression that just happens. And there there's, seems to be still, you know, that, that same determination that we were talking about earlier, of like really determined to find truth, that same determination is very much here. Yeah. And it, it, and it speaks now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's serving a very good purpose in the world, personally. And there are many, many people all over the world doing that in their own way, with their own little groups and their own little one-on-ones and, and, mm. and so on. Supposedly, the 10th avatar of Vishnu is supposed to be Maitreya, and Maitreya means friend. And, and some people say that you know, the, the coming of God in, in our time will be from friend to friend, one-to-one, okay. uh, as opposed to some great being who comes to save us and you know, speaks to the millions. It's, it's more like much more democratic than that. Well, you know, what we're actually talking about is intimacy. That's why I like the the dialogues that we I do in the meetings because they're so intimate mm-hmm. that you know uh, most people are afraid of intimacy, afraid of really revealing themselves to somebody else for for all kinds of reasons, you know, um, fearful reasons. But um, in in uh, holding that intimacy, they get to see all those fearful reasons, um, and they're uncomfortable, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, because they also come up with physical sensations that are uncomfortable. But um, in holding that intimacy, even though those fearful thoughts and sensations come up, there's a cracking and an opening that happens in that. I wouldn't mm-hmm. even say even though those sensations come up. I think probably the sensations are coming up as part of the whole transformation that, that they're undergoing as you're working with them. You know, there's, there's like, as I was saying, that's maybe that's what I was trying to allude to earlier. There's this like physiological correlate. You know, there's people are going okay. undergoing these big shifts, and the, and sometimes the physiology is really rearranging itself to accommodate the shift that they're undergoing. Yeah, yeah, it does seem to be felt, you know, very, very much kind of physically. You know, with every pretty much every belief or every um, old kind of habit or pattern, mm-hmm. it's predominantly felt physically yeah um, when i say physically i am i'm including emotionally and uh, there may be fears there may be you know mm. some intentions you know that are some coming up and melting all kinds of stuff going on yeah and and a lot of the time they, there isn't necessarily even a, a thought story mm-hmm. that goes along with them there, there can be but sometimes i've seen in retreats um People maybe have explored a lot of those thought stories already, um, but there's still waves and waves of physical stuff just still coming up. Yeah. And and that's the opportunity uh, to just you know in those retreats that it it just is all okay for it to just come up. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes we just sit together or someone maybe shouts for a while, <laughs> <laughs> or you know whatever it is, or cries and yeah. laughs even. You know, some people laugh hysterically for a while. Yeah, that, that's all I was trying to get at earlier when I went on mm. that long thing was that, okay. that uh, there's a lot of um, subjective nature of our life and, and the, f- the physiological nature of our life are kind of like interlinked. Changes in one result in changes in the other, vice versa. Like they, they go hand in hand kind of. That's all I was yeah. trying to say. No, absolutely. I yeah. guess, that, yeah, I just, uh, the, the theory of it didn't really... I, I got a little too abstract with it yeah. there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. 
Another thing that I uh, thought about a lot while I was listening to you was that I consider it important, and I'd like to hear your, your reaction to this, to um, acknowledge that there are sort of levels to reality in a way. I mean, ultimately there aren't. If you want to like take physics as an example, a physicist, you could say, okay, fine, there's a molecular level and there's the atomic level, there's a subatomic level, and then you get down to the vacuum state with virtual fluctuations, and, and that's really all there is. And, and you know, on that level, there are no molecules, atoms, uh, you know, any, any of the rest of it. But then again, there are. Maybe they're more virtual, maybe they're not as fundamentally real, but obviously they are practical realities that we interact with. A lot of times what I see happening is that teachers, they offer a description of their state or whatever. I heard you say in some of your talks, I'm just offering a description here. I'm not uh, offering this as a prescription. But sometimes that's done, unfortunately. The, you know, there's a sort of a, based upon their orientation, their, their experience, they draw conclusions and apply them to people who are not necessarily at that level of experience. And I think it can sometimes confuse people. You know what I'm trying to say? Sure, yeah. Well, people can misinterpret a lot of things. Yeah. Again, that was a bit of a long-winded question, but do you, you have any more uh, response to that, or should we let it... <laughs> not really. <laughs> okay. It's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't really understand. Uh, I'm what sorry. You were I, I could have made it much more concise, I'm sure. Um, maybe I should drop it. It's like on some level, nothing is happening and nothing ever happened. But on other levels, things are happening. And on some level, there's no doer. We're not doing anything. On another level, you know, you and I are having a conversation. We are doing something. So, what are you asking, though? Well, the question is, I just wanted your opinion about this and whether maybe you even went through a phase as a teacher of, of doing this and, and then kind of evolved out of it. Uh, sometimes I hear people sort of taking that no-doing state and kind of applying it to the, the doing level. Okay. In other words, right. you know, why shouldn't I rob a bank? Because there's really no person yeah, here. Yeah. You okay, know, I, what, you I can do whatever I want. There's really no one doing it. Yeah, well, that kind of brings us back to this non-duality speak. Again. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same thing. You know, it's kind of taking this recognition, well, thinking that this recognition is actually an attitude. And it's not an attitude at all. It's not something that you can do or not do. It's not a mood. <laughs> it's not a mood. It's not any kind of state. It's not a, it's not a belief. Yeah. It's not a religion. It's not something that if you believe in it, that's all that it takes. It's not a belief. I've heard that a lot, that uh, you know, people will say, yeah, but there's nothing I can do to wake up. And, yeah, it's true. And as I was saying before, you know, while you think that you should search and practice and all that, you should do everything, and you can. You have you know, every choice in the world to be able to choose to search. You know? mm -hmm. when, you think, when you believe that you are someone who can do that, then you can do it. Yeah. Now, now in recognizing that actually there isn't anyone here with any kind of separate volition and separate control, then actually it's not about whether or not I can do it or whether or not I, I can't do it. It's the recognizing that actually there's no one here. So that any doing or not doing is just happening. Yes. 
And it doesn't mean that, okay, all I could just go rob a bank. You have no control. So it's not like, even if you think that you could go and rob a bank, you can't control that. It's not, you know, that's just a thought. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. uh, even that thought is happening out of control. The whole thing, everything is just life doing it. Right. And what I'm sort of cautioning against is people who hear you say a thing like that and say, oh, yes, there's no control. But it's not actually their experience yet. And then they kind of use that as a, an, an excuse for irresponsible behavior or well, you know, s- some such um, thing. What I've, what I've come across a lot and, and um, what I see with a lot of other people is that um, people hear about, um, what we, as you were saying, like a description of, of how it is for me or for uh, another uh, teacher or something. Um, and people will try to replicate that, mm, exactly. Which is which is very natural um, because that you know that's the nature of thought because thought is doing whatever it can to try and help out. Mm. You know, it sees there's a problem here and it's trying to help. So it's kind of happening innocently. It's nothing, you know, that people are doing wrong or something. But it's pointless. You know, just by trying to replicate someone else's state. You know, it's it's fake. Yeah. It's fake, and and it's an attitude. It's some kind of effort, a trying, a believing that you can do it as well. Yeah. It's, it's belie- It's some kind of controlling your situation, and coming back to that arrogance, it's it's more arrogance. Yeah. No, I I agree. It's very well put. And every word that is happening now, is just happening. Even as you say, oh, it's very well put. There's no control over what is being said. There's no... It's just happening spontaneously. It's totally spontaneous. And, yeah, I I, I don't even understand what I'm talking about. You do and you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not like you're speaking Japanese or something. You you understand the concepts, but, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying. At, At the same time, you don't. So you're in the U.S. now. And you've been here for a while, I guess. And uh, well, this people will be seeing this for year, years, so it's on YouTube. Um, okay. But I will be linking to your website from mine, so if people want to get in touch with you whenever they listen to this, and uh, possibly go to a retreat. Do you do satsangs over Skype or anything, or do you just always do them in person? I do Skype as well. I mean, I prefer it in person because of that intimacy thing. Yeah. Um, but Skype is, you know, a, a second option if people mm-hmm. are really far away and they can't make it to a retreat. Yeah. I mean, the main, my main thing that I do is retreats. Okay. They're much more um, intense and there's much more of a depth in yeah. general uh, uh, in a retreat with a smaller group, with a group that is committed to being there for a week or 10 days or however long the retreat is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the there's um, a lot can happen, and uh, yeah, yeah, it can be quite mind-blowing, really. Do uh, you quite routinely see people undergo rather profound shifts or awakenings or whatever term you want to use on those retreats? Absolutely, yeah. It's shocking to me every time. <laughs> yeah, because I, as I was saying, like I'm not doing any of it. It's just yeah, how that to get together. Yeah, it's like, woo, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and does it um, tend to stick for most people or do they all go home and lose it again? 
Well, you see, again, we're not talking about an experience, are I, we? But what do people report back to you? Do they they think, oh, the retreat was marvelous, but now I'm stuck in the mud again? Or do they think, wow, I've this is it, you know? They recognize that it's not an experience, mm-hmm. you know? So even when, and we talk about this, even when they go back to their regular life mm-hmm. um, and the, the experience is bound to change, you know, because when you're on a retreat with some lovely people, you know, we're having a great time and, uh, yeah, um, it's, it is quite a, a high experience, mm-hmm. although it can have some hard times in it as well. But it normally ends on quite a high. So when you go back to your life, uh, your, you know, your job or whatever, it can be a little bit of a downer because you've left some lovely friends and you know, a lovely week in, in, yeah, in some be- beautiful place. Yeah, you go back to your job that you don't like or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it can be a little bit of like, oh, yeah. you know, which is natural. So we kind of we we talk about that, but but uh, yeah, I mean it's it. Uh, I don't expect people to kind of go away on a high forever. Right. You know, we we talk about reality. It's it's about like even when you go back to your normal life and the same old thoughts come up, it's about uh, seeing that even those thoughts are happening in who you are. Mm-hmm. It's not that those thoughts now should suddenly all go away and your whole experience should be all peaceful. <laughs> it's about recognizing that even when the experience of feeling upset or feeling, you know, there's lots of thinking or fear or, you know, whatever is going on, that that is all happening in you. Mm-hmm. And and so in recognizing that, there's a natural kind of not taking it so seriously. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not that it has to change or go away. It's that it's seen in a different, from a different perspective, and it's not even a perspective. It's just seen totally, just differently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's that it's that 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 changes and doesn't change back. It's it almost sounds like the difference between watching a scary movie and not even knowing it's a movie and it's really scary, or you know, mm. sitting back in in the theater and really, oh, this is only a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's times, of course, afterwards that thoughts will come up and kind of identify again and 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 believe that it that i'm in the movie you know i'm i'm really yeah it gets you know, more gripping yeah, yeah yeah um and that's that's where we come back to this idea of never-ending losing you know or not not only the idea that mm. the way life is that actually it's about more and more and more and more seeing through those old kind of gripping things they have to come up to be felt to fully grip so that you can see it and some things have to come up again and again and again mm-hmm. because they're such old ingrained things and some of them uh, just come up once and that's it they're seen through mm-hmm. and they don't really come up again anymore huh. or they come up and they're just seen as a joke each time but some of them seem to kind of run for quite a while and then after you know it takes some some time for things to be seen through yeah, they're large enough that you can't get them all in one shovel full. You know, have to sort of shovel quite a few times on that one to get it yeah. resolved. Yeah, so, I, so I'm not talking about, you know, you know, sometimes you go to a retreat and you have this blissful experience and then that's it. It, it passes when you go home. So I don't, you know, even if you do have a great time on, on a retreat, um, going home you know it might be a different experience but actually nothing's changed right you know that's really what i get at in a retreat 
it seems that a lot of people have the experience that at a certain stage, it's almost like a fire gets lit under them, and there's a sort of a, a momentum, that, a new pace of evolutionary process that gets ignited. Um, yeah. And uh, do you find that people who attend your, your retreats very often have that happen to them, that there's sort of a, a new momentum kicks in and then just yeah. persists yeah. even, you know, whatever they do after that? Absolutely. I, I've got some people who come to my retreats kind of year after year, and I see massive changes in them, you know, when I don't see them for a year. Mm -hmm. Something really has softened in them or opened or something has relaxed, and they're, they're lighter somehow. They just don't take themselves as serious, and we can have a laugh together. And, yeah. And there's just some more love or something, you know, some more juiciness with them. Um, Do you? Yeah, and that's um, just happen by itself you know do you recommend or prescribe anything for people to do in the interludes between retreats or do you just sort of set them out and they just live life and take it as it comes yeah i don't prescribe anything because life does its own work it does it know? for it, them it, yeah. yeah life brings up situations where you know you just have to face uh, your feelings your thoughts you know? and it's it's about that you know i guess what I'm pointing to again and again and intensely in retreats is that um, there is no escape from reality. Mm. And as long as you think that there is, that you're trying to escape into some altered state of consciousness or some blissful state or, or, or even the awakening state, you're escaping. You're trying to escape the reality of, of what might be there, like, like some pain or some fear uh, you know, or or even some more pleasurable things, you know, because sometimes uh, feeling pleasure um, can also be something that's too frightening for people to feel. Mm. So, or joy, you know. Mm. Yeah, so it's just, yeah, no escape from reality. So you kind of like enable people to take the orientation to just face life more candidly or something more... Um, yeah. Fearlessly. Yeah, and, yes, and to see that the whole thing's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that paradox. It goes hand in hand. You yep. see, you can, uh, you, you, there is the natural courage to face everything that life throws at you if you know that it's a joke. You know, if you know that it's not real. I mean, real, yes, but like not, you know, it's not really happening to you. Yeah. If you, if you know that, then you can face anything. Even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm, I, for some reason, I'm reminded of the Gita where a lot of the verses when Lord Krishna was about to say something were introduced by Krishna smilingly spoke. And here he is about to you know, face, be in the midst of this gory battle, and yet he has this playful smile on his face. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like just knowing that it's a joke. Yeah. Just, yeah. So this has been great. I really enjoy... Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Been looking forward yeah, to it. And I, being who I am, I could go on all night dreaming up more questions and, and all that. <laughs> but uh, there's a certain natural stopping point to these interviews. Mm -hmm. So I think, sure. I think we'll wrap it up. So let me just make a few concluding remarks. You've been listening to an interview with Unmani. And this interview is one of many in an ongoing series called Buddha at the Gas Pump. Um, 
and you can find all of the interviews at batgap.com, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. You can also sign up for an email notification to be alerted every time a new interview gets posted. You can sign up to listen to these as an audio podcast. Many people report that they like to listen to it during their commute time or whatever. And also a little discussion group tends to crop up around each interview after it's posted. There's a place where you can post comments and questions. And Sometimes I'll invite the, the guests whom I've interviewed to come in there and answer a question or two. So there's that. So that's about it. I appreciate your having taken the time to listen or watch. I appreciate Unmani having the taken, taken the time. And I apologize for my occasional long-windedness. <laughs> uh, and, and inability to state things clearly and concisely. Uh, <laughs> no, it, was, it was great. Thank you very much, Rick. Yeah. It was nice. It was really nice chatting with you, too. Oh, thank you. Um, so, and thanks to all who watched or listened, and we'll see you next time.